This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The issue, of course, of uh, what's going to be happening with the Police Services Board is something that is front and center with an awful lot of us. And, of course, uh, there have been a number of different issues uh, that have been ongoing for quite some time. Uh, one of them was the the re-election of the chair. Lloyd Ferguson was re-elected by the uh, Police Services Board late last week. And we wanted to get him on to talk about some of the issues and how they're going to deal with some of the stuff going forward. Uh, there's some personality issues. There are some... Uh, uh, composition issues, I guess we could say, about the board. And then, of course, there is the work that needs to be done by the Police Services Board. So to that end, uh, we welcome the uh, newly re-elected uh, chair of the Police Services Board, uh, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson of the Bill Kelly Show. Lloyd, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me on and be able to talk about what we're facing in 2018 at the Hamilton Police. Now, listen, I want you to address a couple of the other things. You know that there was a citizens group and, and frankly, some of your council colleagues that had some expressed some concerns about the police services board and their actions and their compositions and, and, and a couple of other things. So I'm going to throw a couple of those at you. I want to get your reaction, and then we'll, we'll go about the 2018 agenda for the board. First of all is the composition of the board itself. And, and this is not a new criticism of the board, but it's one that I think we need to talk about and deal with here, and that is the lack of, uh, of diversity is, is the phrase that's used an awful lot. And, and as you look around the police services board table as these meetings, uh, there's a concern there. How does the board, or what can the board do to try to respond to that? Well, really nothing, because we don't pick the board members. Uh, they're picked by the city council. At the start of every council term, they put three members of council on, and they're Terry and um, and Fred and myself. The mayor is automatically on, is that right? He, he can't, Yes, he is, but he can step back and say he doesn't want to do it, and another member of council come up. But certainly Fred wanted to be on it, and we're glad he's there, and to bring the mayor's perspective. So there's the mayor, there's Terry and myself as the three council representatives. There's one citizen representative that uh, runs concurrent with the council term, uh, and that's Walt. And then the uh, the province appoints three. And right now we have Madeline Levy, the only woman. If we have a major shortage, we need more women on the board, in my view, in, in addition to the diversity part. But there's Madeline Levy, there's Don McVicker, and Stan Tech. And all three of those are appointed by the province. So this is not something that the board deals with, um, and nor should we. It, it should be done by the, you know, certainly the city is the major funder. In fact, they're the only funder of policing. It all comes through the Hamilton budget and yeah, if you're going to pay, you got to play. Is is was the name of the legislation that put four city council people on the board, and then the province, uh, of course, the uh, Police Services Act is is a provincial document, so they put three appointees on also. So uh, you know the the council reps all run with the council term, and the provincial appointees stagger, and so Don McVicker is the latest to come on. All right, but let me let me get into that the nuts and bolts of that because you mentioned one of the members, and I don't want to get into names. I just want to talk about positions here. One of the members is actually appointed by Hamilton City Council. So if council really wanted to do something about diversity, uh, at, whether it's gender, whether it's ethnicity, whatever the case might be, that's their one opportunity to do that. That's the one appointee that they have carriage over. Now, I'm talking about the council, not the police services board. Correct. All right, so... Uh, they also have, have, have uh, carriage over the three council appointees also. And, uh, you know, we do have some women on council. And, and quite frankly, uh, next term, if I if I decide to run and if I'm reelected, I, I think we should have more women on there. But that'll be a decision city council can make. Correct. And that's that's done by, um, it's called the selection committee, right? They, they no, select the, 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 the actual yeah, selection committee picks the one citizen who brings a recommendation to council. Yeah. Yeah, but they pick the, they do the interviews, and there's generally a lot of interest in it, and so they bring their recommendation back to city council, where uh, the three council appointees. Um, there's a process right after the election that clerks run, where council members pick the committees they want on, and um, if more than the the required number apply, then they go to um, uh, uh, an open vote. You know where it's it's done in public. And everyone can see how everyone else votes, and that's how it's done for the three members of council. Okay, but the end of the the bottom line here is that the city council does have that opportunity to select somebody and, and perhaps to to address this. And for whatever reason, uh, well, they didn't do it in this particular case. Uh, but but be that as it may, now now let me ask you about the provincial appointees. Uh, you mentioned the province makes these appointments. Does the police services board have any sway? Do they do they recommend names to 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 the, this agency, or do they just step back and whatever happens happens? We, we just step back. We have no control over that. 
it's it's picked, but they're picked by cabinet. They have to go through a police check, and um, but they, they look around the province through their own process to find the right candidates to serve. And and quite frankly, uh, you know, the three provincial appointees are very capable that are on there right now. I think they've done a good job of it. But uh, next time they may be looking more at diversity. They may be looking at more women. But that's entirely up to the province. All right. So th- and again, you just step back, and whoever comes forward is is. That's that's who you're working with. That's all there is to it. That's correct. All you right. know, the, the allegations that I, as chair, uh, didn't put any diversity on the board is is absolutely erroneous. I I don't have any. Nor does the board have any control over it. All right, uh, but council does have control over one of those positions, and I just wanted to make sure that that's on the record. All right, very quickly then, let me talk about the composition and the chemistry. Uh, I mean, over the last couple of years, and it's not exclusive to your time as chair because it actually predates your time as chair, Lloyd. But we have had members of the board, including yourself, that have been suspended, uh, uh, private members that have gone back and forth between some of the governing agencies with police services board because of bickering that's gone on and accusations and finger pointing. Uh, the story of the police services board is, has become the chemistry or lack thereof as opposed to the agenda moving forward. Now, I, I understand. I, I know I've talked to you about this in the past. I know how frustrated you are by that. But now that you're back there in the chair, uh, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do to try to bring this 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 board together and, and, and focus on what needs to be focused on instead of some of the what some people would consider to be petty stuff that's going on all the time? Well, I, I encourage all members of the board to focus on policing issues, not on other things. And, and for the most part, they do. Um, there's, you know, democracy rules in, in on this board or any other public board because, you know, people have died in this country to maintain the right to uh, elect people and ultimately have those people who are elected make decisions. And so there's there's nothing wrong with having spirited conversations on issues. And, uh, you know, in fact, we should encourage that to have different opinions. But at the end of the day, it's the majority that rules. And same with my appointment as, as re-election as chair. There was a vote of five to two, so the majority rules. That's the, the, the basis of how we make decisions. Now, I can't uh, control other than limit debate, because if they start to get disrespectful to other members of the board, I have uh, the authority and the duty to shut that down. And I've, I've exercised that, or, or they start to get abusive towards staff. I have a duty to shut that down and um, take it offline with them. But if it's, if it's an issue that needs discussion, whether it's a budget item, whether it's the purchase of tasers as a, as a different tool, the tool belt for our frontline officers, we can have that discussion. But it'll go to a vote, and the majority will carry the day, and that's the way it should be. All right, duties of the Police Services Board, and I know we're kind of getting into to Police Services Board's 101 here, but uh, there's there's been a, a, some discrepancy over the last little while about what the board can and cannot do. Uh, you allocate funding, obviously. I mean, you guys deal with a budget. You pass a budget. It goes to city council, and they get the, their say about the budget. But when it comes to deployment of officers and how things are actually done on the street, how much, if any, control does the service board have over that, or is that a policing issue? Well, generally, the board will stay out of operational issues. They don't get, they don't, they don't run around in police cruisers. And we set policy, and uh, you know, they're going to uh, narcoxin is a policy issue that we're going to have a discussion on. Should police officers be carrying those? And, and we'll do that in conjunction with the chief and the balance of the senior command. But there was quite a discussion about this, and there were significant res- uh, um, recommendations that come out of the justice that heard about the policing matters at the G20 conference. And the simplest way I can describe it to your listeners about the operational side of policing is that the board members must put their nose in, can put their nose in, but keep their fingers out. And, uh, you know, the Toronto board was heavily criticized for not knowing what was going to happen when people were arrested at the G20 conference and some other things that went on, and they should have asked those questions. Now, we did exactly that uh, during an in-camera discussion um, about the Pan Am Games and the security around the Pan Am Games and how do you deal with protesters. But to get the message simply through, we, we can ask questions about it, but we can't put our fingers in. So we put our nose in, but keep our fingers out. So to give, the, let's use the, the naloxone example. You can't, as a police services board, or even as the chair, uh, go to the chief and say, I want you to start giving naloxone to your officers. You can say you want that to happen, but you, it's ultimately his decision? Well, I've, I've, we've asked for a legal opinion on that. Who ultimately has authority on this? And uh, it come back uh, 
from the lawyer, and we don't necessarily have to take the, the legal advice. But they suggested that's an operational decision, which we make at the chiefs. But they also suggested that the board and the chief should have a conversation about this and, and hopefully have a united front on what the right thing is to do. And uh, after we now got this legal opinion back, it'll be on the board agenda for the February meeting. And I hope to have that discussion. Now, uh, the Hamilton Police Services Board is doing their budget presentation to, uh, to council tomorrow. And I expect that that question will come up, and uh, you know we'll answer it the same way I just answered it now. That uh, we've sought legal opinion. The legal opinion it's an operational issue, but it's the legal view that the the uh, board and the chief should have a conversation about this and try to come to a consensus. All right, uh, we got a couple of minutes left here, and I want to get into some of the issues facing the board in 2018. One of them is going to be money. I know that you've got some preliminary budget numbers, and and the numbers are are attractive, I guess, when you look at potential increases. But there's an awful lot of pressure on the city council, as you know, Lloyd, because of some of the other things that are happening. We've talked about some of the, the, the real estate, real assessments that have gone on, which is putting pressure on you and a number of other things. Uh, how, how in this case, can you justify increases uh, when city council is going to be looking at slashing in so many other different areas? Well, let me just talk about the budget briefly. I'm going to give you a real highlight. Yep. The chief will be going into significant detail tomorrow. The budget increase that the board has recommended is 2.45%. It's the lowest in 19 years. And uh, we've already heard the our CFO, Mike Zagarek, say that he expects an assessment increase, which is additional tax revenue due to all this growth we're having, the billion dollars a year in building permits, of about 1%. So the net impact to the levy will be 1.45%, which is below the 1.5% guideline that council set out. So being the lowest in 19 years, but in the same time, where it, it includes bringing in nine more uh, employees. Now, uh, six of those are going to be uh, civilian appointees to our forensic unit. Um, it's not necessary to have sworn officers go out and gather evidence at a crime scene. And in fact, there's, there's actually educational facilities that uh, train people how to do that. So the plan is to put six civilians into the forensic unit. Then those six uh, sworn officers are in there, put them back on frontline duties. And so yeah, there'll be more officers come back on the street. In addition to that, there's three others in into uh, going into other specialty areas, whether it's crime against seniors or whether it's um, you know that this whole spike we're seeing in in in, in uh, sexual assaults and uh, domestics. Well, well, we've got gunplay that's happening on the streets here too. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And and so uh, that you know, that's part of why we're putting six more frontline officers back on the street by taking them out of forensics and replacing them with civilians. Now, on the, uh, you know, the, we're, we're also, let me just uh, stay with the budget for a second, and then I'll come back to the gunplay. The um, Investigative Services Building is now underway. Uh, Hamilton Community Energy is doing their installation of their piping system as we speak to uh, bring in centralized heat and cooling from their new facility over at the courthouse. But this is the largest capital project in the history of the police service. And uh, we'll be doing the groundbreaking uh, ceremony probably in the next couple of weeks. We haven't firmed up a date yet. But, uh, you know, I'm going to use my 32 years in construction experience to uh, work with uh, Dan Bowen and his staff to bring this in on schedule and on budget. But it's a facility that we've been waiting 11 years for. We finally got approval to go ahead in 2017, but the the shovel is ready to go in the ground. And, and so that's another budgeting item that's uh, been covered off with no impact to the taxpayers on that. Okay, i got about a minute left, now. I want you to touch on this other issue about safety. Okay, so uh, I did meet with Justice Tulloch on Monday. And uh, with Justice Tulloch, uh, that was my central issue with them. We have this new legislation that came into effect on January the 1st, 17. It's a, it's a horrible, difficult name to, to pronounce, but it's collection of identification information in certain circumstances, prohibition and duties policy. So back in um, uh, 2012, before the, 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 there was this rise up from special interest groups about the whole street check issue, we did 4,803. In 2016, we did six. In 2017, we just got the number, it's five. So they're virtually non-existent now. But our shootings have gone from seven in 2014 to 40 last year. 
So it was my belief, and you know, I can't scientifically prove it, but I certainly raise it with the justice who's doing a review of this, is that there's got to be a correlation. Bad guys feel okay carrying guns now because when an officer stops a suspicious person on the street and tries to talk to him, he has to tell him, you have the right to walk away if you want to. And the bad guy is going to walk away. Good guys will sit and chat with them all they want, but the bad guys will walk away. So my view, and it's just my personal view, and I think some members of the board have the same issue, that there's a correlation between officers not talking to people anymore and our spike in shootings. And so we're going to deal with that in 2018. Hopefully the justice listened to that when I spoke with them on Tuesday, and hopefully there'll be some changes to make it more comfortable for police officers to go back again and talk to people and try to get these guns out the street. Now, All right, and that's an issue that I really want to get into more detail with, and I'd love to get you and Chief Gerd in here to do that. And I'll tell you what, I know our time is tight right now. As a matter of fact, it's ended now. But uh, I want to set a date for that, Lloyd, because that's a discussion that does, every community has to be having. And you've heard some of the the voices of dissent about that here in the community, so I look oh, forward oh, to that. And absolutely, and we should also talk further about the drug crisis and the safe injection sites and the cannabis legislation and how much more that's going to cost us. And, and uh, you know, we all go into a new three-year business cycle for our business plan has to be done this year. And we have to recruit a new deputy chief and a new CAO, and the interviews for that start next week and the deputy chief right after that. So, so we got we got a lot to talk about then, and we will uh, set up a date and get you guys in here so we can uh, give a fuller discussion about this. Lloyd, I really appreciate the overview on this today, though. Thanks so much for the time. You're welcome, Bill. That's uh, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, of course, the uh, newly re-elected chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, uh, we're talking about budget pressures, police services budget, of course, which uh, and, and the chief's going to do an overview, as uh, Councilor Ferguson just told us. Uh, Council's going to get an earful about that tomorrow. But that's not nearly as controversial as some of the other stuff that they're going to have to deal with. And one of them is conservation authorities. Uh, the city was recently told that it has lost its appeal of a Niagara Peninsula conservation authority decision to change a longstanding funding formula. Uh, but it's not giving up the fight. Now, this is uh, something that may not be familiar to an awful lot of us as taxpayers. But uh, because of where we are and because of the number of watersheds uh, that flow into the Hamilton area, uh, we're supposed to get money. There's, there's a, a, a deal that's supposed to be happening, a financial deal between conservation authorities and the city of Hamilton. And uh, they just got a, a smack in the head uh, for how, just about how much this is going to cost. Uh, Terry Whitehead, Councillor for Ward 8 up of the West Mountain, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the impact and what they were told. Uh, Terry, thanks so much for the time. It's uh, good to have you with us again today. Well, it's great to uh, be speaking to you and your listeners about this great travesty. Well, let's talk about this. And, and maybe, Terry, you could spend a couple of seconds ex explaining to us exactly what happens in the relationship between conservation authorities and, and the city council and the city of Hamilton. Absolutely. So, uh, and I think you need to go to uh, uh, what the historic issues are and what the legislation says. So the legislation that helped uh, facilitate the funding for conservation authorities uh, was based on um, uh, communities uh, to were within those water uh, sheds and the assessment, and they would pay a proportion of their assessment towards those particular con uh, conservation authorities. So, for example, pre-amalgamation, uh, Flamborough would have been butting off on uh, Halton, and you know, Ancaster, uh, parts of Ancaster might be butting off the Grand River, and then Bimbrook uh, in the context of Niagara. So they were apportioned based on their assessments because they're actually in those watersheds. I think Grand River came in and did a study and indicated that 5% of Hamlin's total assessment is in the Grand River uh, assessment base. So historically, uh, while uh, those, had, those communities had their own, their own autonomy, their own governments before amalgamation, they paid based on that assessment. Then, uh, what trans then we had regional government, and that pr practice continued. So historically over years, that that apportionment to those conservation authorities were the same. Then amalgamation comes in, and they do all the costings and the whole bet, and nowhere that it indicates there'll be additional costs to the city of Hamilton, the old city of Hamilton, because Hamilton itself is uh, confined by what's called the Hamilton Conservation Authority. Yeah. Then you have the Grand Conservation Authority. Then you got the Niagara Conservation Authority. Then you got the Halton Conservation Authority. And the reality is that Hamilton was only impacted by one even in, re in regional days. All of a sudden, bang, uh, they're all folded in. There is an understanding that the historic arrangements of those communities will now be the stewardship of this new entity called the City of Hamilton. So for a number of years, we paid the same apportionment based on the past practices. 
Now, there was understanding that there was an automatic agreement, and the, this was appealed by NAGRA. And the reason uh, NAGRA appealed it is indicated that we didn't have resolutions from all the their, their contributing uh, communities that agreed to this. So the agreement was just a, uh, an informal agreement with the actual conservation authority, but they didn't have separate resolutions of support from those surrounding communities. So based on that, they go and file an appeal, and uh, the commissioner, we feel, uh, we feel the, the decision is flawed, has indicated that the city of Hamilton will, have to, will now have to pay these additional charges. So this is a windfall. What I mean by that is, so for example, in Niagara's case, they're, they're, what we paid for, based on the assessment, based on historical uh, practice, and, and what's actually in that watershed, we were paying around 200 thousand a year, two hundred and twenty thousand a year. Now it's gone up to eight hundred and eighty four thousand. Now this opened the floodgate. So then Grand River comes in and says, Well since this you got this commissioner's uh, decision, we now feel obligated to uh, serve notice that we're going to be pursuing uh, the same thing. Now, so so Grand so River- just to put this in context, uh, I live in Ancaster. Yep. So a portion of now of, of what I'm going to be paying in property taxes is going to go to Halton Region Conservation Authority and Niagara, even though it has no impact at all on, on my part of the community. Correct. But it didn't used to be that way. I would only have paid into the Hamilton Conservation Authority, and, and maybe, I guess, depending on Ancaster, I guess maybe uh, there Grand. could have been stuff with Grand River. I don't know. Yep. I, I, I'm not that well-versed on where they are. But now these conservation authorities are basically ganging up on the city and simply saying, we want a bigger piece of the pie, and they won. Yeah, well, so let's be clear to those. This is a this is this is the ironic part. This is not about the conservation authorities all of a sudden to have this new windfall on their budgets. All this does. So for those environmentalists and that, well, you know, climate change, we need to put more money in conservation. Or let's be clear, all this is a redistribution of, of financial responsibility. So by us going up so much, that means Waterloo is going down. Hull, or Oakville's going down, Burlington's going down, Niagara's going down. So basically, there's no net gain for the conservation authority on their budget. No, but it's coming out of our pockets instead of theirs. But, but we are we are now lowering all those other jurisdictions' uh, uh, contributions to those conservation authorities as a result of this ruling. So uh, on the backs of Hamilton, other communities are benefiting. And let's be clear, right now, for example, in Halton, if, and I'm not sure if they have, say, a Mississauga Conservation Authority over on the Oakville side. But it's, they've got a regional government. It's not like Burlington is paying uh, additional uh, cost to support that Conservation Authority abutting Oakville, even though they're a regional government. So there seems something inherently unfair that the city of Hamilton, uh, when we and a cost was never identified through the amalgamation process, and in fact, what we were told that over and above what they, uh, they identified, that we would just assume the current arrangements. Well, the current arrangements were that the assessments uh, in, in Niagara, uh, Niagara was based on the assessments within that area, the community within that area, or, or Grand River, or, or, or Flamborough. All of a sudden, bang, now they get this big uh, chestnut of Hamilton with a fairly significant assessment. Not all of them, even though none of those watersheds are on the Hamilton proper. All right, so, and, and this is uh, something that was adjudicated uh, by somebody called the the Provincial Mining and Lands Commission. I don't even know if anybody even knows who those people are, but they're the ones that have made this ruling. Uh, and did you guys anticipate this? I mean, I mean, you're sitting down with budget discussions right now. You knew that there was an appeal there, but did staff prepare you for the fact that you might actually get another $2 million hit here? So here's how it works, unfortunately. So uh, I think it was two years ago when Niagara uh, uh, served the notice and then bumped up uh, their ask based on that legislation. We can't say no. So we had to pay it. So we've been paying the Niagara one for two years, and we had to pay it under uh, protest. And then we filed our appeal to that uh, the appropriate uh, uh, um, department or ministry. And then it's been taking this long to actually uh, reach a conclusion with that particular ruling. Now, tonight at Council, we will uh, determine the next course of action. Uh, clearly, no one's happy. Uh, uh, it just doesn't make sense that uh, the City of Hamilton taxpayers are exposed to these additional costs when historically the practice is being uh, based on the assessments within those impacted areas. And, and we didn't do it when we were regional government. Uh, so why would we do it just because we 
incorporated as one city. It just doesn't make sense. All right, and and I know there was outrage yesterday when you guys heard about this or a couple of days ago. And, and I, I can understand that. Look, I'm a taxpayer. I'm, I'm ticked yeah. off about this, too. Uh, but, I mean, what options do you have? I know one of your colleagues said they were just going to walk out and protest. That's not going to solve anything. You, you've got to come <laughs> up with a viable solution here. What do you, What options do you have? Okay, so, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Council tonight, we've already had in-camera session. Uh, they looked at a couple options. I can't get into what those options are. I mean, you know, obviously, clearly, you could have judicial reviews or courts or whatever. So, I mean, obviously, they're going to have to make a decision on that. But you're going to have to get, you're going to have to get legal here. Yeah. But, well, I think you have no choice. But I think the other, uh, well, that's one option. I believe that we can go right back to the amalgamation. And we can take a look at what was understood what the, the uh, it's like in, in, in labor law, for example, there's a term called estoppel. That means that past practices have to be recognized. And so when you look at the historic uh, uh, funding uh, practices uh, with those particular conservation authorities prior to uh, uh, the, the forced amalgamation, uh, they have, those should be given some weight. And I also believe that because of the amalgamation, uh, that the municipal affairs ministry needs to be part of the solution to this particular issue. But you that's, know, that's Terry, you were around. Issue. You were around when the amalgamation started, uh, as was I. Uh, and the biggest problem, and here's another example of it coming back to bite you in the butt, is that so many of the things were left as loose ends. And, oh, you guys can work that out later on. We just move ahead with this amalgamation. Let's just get this done. And, and yeah, there's some details that we don't really know a bunch about, but, you know, down the road we'll figure this out. Well, here you are 17 years later, and you're getting clobbered by this thing. Two point, by the way, just for your listeners, the total impact uh, right now, estimated impact by these changes as of this year is a $2.2 million. And that's, that's a budget pressure. In other words, that's $2.2 million added to the, to the tax roll right now that you've either got to find savings for someplace else or, or appeal this thing. But well, as it stands right now, that's on the books. And potentially, absolutely. And, and, and here's the other thing that the taxpayers need to know. This is this doesn't lower the Ancaster contribution. This does not lower the Waterdown contribution. All this does is take their contribution and now add the city of Hamilton into the mix. So nothing gets there's no there's, there's no relief for any taxpayers regardless of where you live in the city. No, but there is for some of the other communities and, and that, that are also served by these conservation authorities. They don't get the same hit that Hamilton does. Well, yeah. I mean, when you look at Hamilton, for example, the Grand River is a 457% increase, right? But you look at Waterloo, they're actually they're dropping, uh, correspondingly, and so is some of those other communities. So they're benefiting at the cost of taxes in the community, not recognizing the historic uh, funding uh, practices that have existed since the, uh, uh, the inception of the legislation. So what really boggles my mind, because I'm a guy that always looks at you know equity and fairness and I, I don't always have to agree with the the decision but i understand the equity in this discussion in this debate there is no equity none zero and uh it's just unfair that uh, if you have regional government you don't have to pay anymore but if you become a city all of a sudden now they get this chestnut of money coming from the big assessment of the old city of hamlet which doesn't even live in those watersheds and we need to know Take that huge assessment and, and, and send money off to Holton, Grand River, and Niagara. And listen, I want to be clear on something, and I think I think a few of your council colleagues were pretty clear about this uh, with their comments. This is not anti-conservation authority. This is not anti-environmental at all. I mean, I support conservation authority as I sat on the conservation authority when I was on council many years ago, and I understand the great work that goes on there. But this is a form of downloading where the provincial government is basically sticking it to the municipality. In this case, it's Hamilton, and simply saying, you guys have got to pick up the beat here. They're, they're not putting any more money on the table for conservation authorities, but they expect we, the taxpayers in Hamilton, to, to, to fill that gap. And that's just not fair. Well, that's a great point. So years ago, uh, the, 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 the province all but got out of funding conservation authorities. Uh, so uh, the province is, is, is you know, not, not this government, but it's never been fixed. Secondly, and, I, and that's how I started this conversation, this doesn't add one additional dollar to the conservation authority. So I firmly believe in conservation authorities. And if it was argued that this increases the budget to meet with climate change and all these other issues, then that would be a different discussion. 
That's not what this is about. All this is about is Hamilton's going to put a lot more in, and the other communities will pay a lot less as a result of that. And the conservation authority is a revenue-neutral comp- uh, proposition for every conservation authority. So there's no net benefit for those great organizations. No, none at all, except they're all going to come to you with their budgets in a couple of weeks, and you're going to have to deal with these larger numbers. And and the, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a, a, a hangover from a, from a previous provincial government that said that we're going to cut the funding for conservation authorities, and nobody's done a whole lot about it now. And the fact is, is we're being punished because of our geographic location. Uh, because we are served, and we have the, the luxury, and it is a luxury, to be served by four different watersheds, the province is saying, well, you know what, we're going to stick it to you. Well, you know, the, the, the reality is we are unique in the fact that I believe we, I don't think there's too many other communities that have as many different watersheds that uh, abut uh, the broader community of Hamilton. And, and that's why this should be dealt with uniquely. And you can't take an archaic legislation uh, and apply it uh, to a forced marriage that never contemplated. And by the way, I was there and all the numbers. And I remember, you know, they rate, you know, the $4 million uh, deficit for the financial utilities, the $10 million for Forest Creek. They had everything quantified for the business case to justify the amalgamation so informed decisions could be made. And I can tell you what was, uh, my understanding what was said on anything that wasn't identified was that the current arrangements and agreements would continue. Well, what happened? What happened to that premise? What happened? And that was a provincial, don't forget, the provincial government was the one uh, part and parcel of this amalgamation. They forced it. What happened to protecting the taxpayers of Hamilton? Have you had any discussion at all? I know it's only been a short time since these numbers became uh, clear to you. Have you had a chance to sit down? Has city staff had a chance to, to get a, a phone call over to the provincial government and say, what's going on here? Well, I think that's part of the, uh, the conversation that a lot of my colleagues and I are having. Uh, you know, Obviously, there's, there's a legal course. I, the problem here on the political course, though, and the reality being reality, you got an election, provincial election around the corner. And if you think you're going to get a political uh, solution, let's, let's, let's please understand. By the city of Hamilton uh, uh, putting all these new dollars, you know, like I said, uh, $1.1 million more for Grand River, uh, uh, you know, I think it's like six, $700,000 more, more for Niagara. I mean, these are significant dollars. Other communities are going down. So from a political perspective, and you understand this, there's many communities, even small communities, that are actually having their allocations of conservation at the expense of Hamilton. So from a political perspective, you could be argued, do I want to piss off you know, 20 different communities or just deal uh, with the anger of Hamilton? It sure looks that. I, I it sure looks that way. I, I, I know. Listen, I know that sounds cynical, but it sure looks that way. Yeah, no, I just don't know if there's a political solution there for those reasons. An evil election. Uh, there's many communities benefiting from this decision, uh, and you know, I mean, you know, I worked at the provincial and federal level. I, I'm sure that'd be part of the discussion. It, you know, sometimes it's not about principle and what's right. It's about we got an election, and do we really want to uh, uh, piss off the benefits that are going to be enjoyed by? <laughs> Waterloo and Halton. They make a determination, Terry. You've been at some of those meetings. They make a determination about the political collateral damage. Correct. And, and can they can they deal with it? Is it going to have an impact on their re-election chances? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. But looking at this Hamilton area and just simply saying, well, you know what, they've only elected one liberal and, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that dynamic took place. I don't know if that conversation took place. But somebody had to notice that this is an unfair decision to the city of Hamilton. And it's an archaic funding formula that's really putting us at a disadvantage. And somebody's got to step in and do something about it. Well, I do plan to uh, sit down uh, uh, with Ted. He's He's been a strong advocate for the city. And uh, talk about. It. I think on, on on the arguments on the principles, there are very profelling and common sense arguments that should prevail. I just hope uh, that my cynicism about politics and on the eve of election don't interfere with good decision making based on what has transpired here in the city of Hamilton. Well, I'm looking forward to the discussion you and your colleagues are going to have about this at the meeting later on this afternoon, Terry. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me, Bill. That's uh, Terry Whitehead, the counselor for Ward 8. Uh, you're all going to be impacted. If you live in the city of Hamilton, the greater city of Hamilton, uh, this is going to have an impact on your taxes. And it's just not fair. It's just not right. And again, 
This is not anti-conservation authority. This is not anti-environmental. This is wonderful. But the province could and should be stepping up and taking a greater responsibility for the great work of conservation authorities and stop putting the burden on property taxpayers again. When are they going to learn? Well, when are we going to stop? The more noise we make, maybe then they'll learn. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I wanted to bring this up because uh, this is a story that uh, that came to my mind uh, a little while ago. Uh, Shalima Maraj from Global News did a program, a, a segment on Global News about Ontario elementary teachers being uh, concerned about violence in the classroom. And I know some people kind of roll their eyes, and I see some of the social media reaction to this story that says, oh, come on, these are just, they're talking about elementary kids. What's the problem? It's a lack of discipline. You, you don't really grasp the problem. I think you have to understand, you have to hear some of the stories about what's going on in many classrooms these days. And to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome Sam Hammond back to the program. Sam is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Sam, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, pleasure, Bill. It's uh, great to be on your show. Well, listen, and this is a, so- a story that really needs to have the light shone on it right now. I saw some of these stories. I saw the report on Global News, Sam, and and it was shocking, frankly, to hear some of those stories. I, but I, I'm getting the sense. I mean, you you've been in the biz for a long time. I, I'm I'm doubting it's it shocked you. I mean, this is like deja vu for you. You've seen this stuff. Yeah, it. Uh, I have seen it. Uh, what's uh, disturbing uh, and shocking is the fact that. Uh, We did a survey with some 20,000 of our members. We have 80,000 members total. We did a survey with 20,000 of them. And almost 80% of our members responded that violent incidences are uh, increasing. The severity of those uh, incidences are increasing. And then 70% of them, which is also shocking, said that they have personally experienced or witnessed another staff member uh, in a violent incident. So it, it is disturbing. Uh, uh, it, you know, I was in the classroom 20 years ago. I've seen this thing, but I think now it's a, a completely different uh, uh, proportion in terms of the numbers and the severity. Sam, why are the numbers going up as, as strongly as they are? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what the root cause of it is, but I, I do know that there are a couple of things that uh, are adding to this or uh, in terms of uh, early intervention, uh, there needs to be uh, an immediate focus and, and uh, on early intervention and early assessment uh, of students who are in need uh, on a number of different levels. Uh, the interesting thing about the, our survey was that uh, uh, the majority of uh, violent incidents are taking place at the full-day kindergarten level and in self-contained classrooms. And the other part of that outside of the assessment, now students are waiting a year or more uh, to be assessed. Uh, and then the lack of on-the-ground uh, supports from educational assistants, youth, uh, child and youth workers, psychometrists, psychologists, etc., cetera, uh, are all compounding the problem. Let's, let's talk about that, because that's a logistical problem that I know that teachers and, frankly, boards of education are having some problems dealing with now. And that's uh, you talk about at the junior levels there, even at the kindergarten level. But the reality is, is if a student has already been assessed as having, for instance, a learning difficulty or any number of other uh, factors that could you know, have a, an impact on behavior, that's one thing, and you can try to deal with that. But oftentimes these students come in and they have not been identified, and, and the teacher is going to have to deal with that anyway. I mean, then you have to start the process at that stage, but in the meantime, that student's there day to day, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it's, it's becoming extremely difficult, and you know, the overwhelming majority of our members have said that uh, these incidents are, in fact, uh, as you can well imagine, uh, affecting their ability to teach effectively and and maintain classroom management. And then the other part of this is the students who are in that uh, classroom who are witnessing this uh, on a uh, a daily uh, daily basis. Because I've seen some of the stories. I mentioned uh, a little while ago that uh, that you were going to come on and we're going to be talking about this. And uh, I got a text, uh, or actually a tweet from uh, Sean uh, just a few minutes ago at CHML, Bill Kelly. says, anybody who says the teachers are, are not really paying much attention to this, and just kids, what's the big deal? It says, my son Keith has FASD and can explode into extreme violence at times out of the blue, it seems. Uh, just watch him for a little while and you get an idea of what people that are dealing with them have to deal with. Therein lies the problem, uh, and, and I guess this is happening with more and more frequency in the classroom, Sam. 
Uh, yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely is. And uh, we need to, I mean, these are uh, that example that j- you just used, uh, that happens across the province on a daily basis. And it's extremely unfortunate that those students who are experiencing that kind of difficulty, uh, as we have said, don't have the supports that they need uh, to get them through that situation and through the day, um, uh, you know, safely and, and, and to carry on with the with, uh, they're teaching, and we we have said that what needs to happen, frankly, uh, is uh, that we the, the government needs to step forward and fix the funding formula, specifically in terms of special education funding. It's now based on a statistical model, uh, and we've advocated that it, it needs to be based on an actual needs on the ground uh, model. And by the way, we need to clarify something. When we talk about violence in the classroom, I think the picture that could be conjured up in some people's heads is, is delinquents, so people that are kids and students that are just being mean and, and ill-tempered. And, and I'm not suggesting that doesn't happen, because I know that's another problem teachers have to deal with. But we're talking about people with identified problems, in some cases not identified problems, and behavioral problems uh, that may require medication, uh, that may require special assistance. And, and I guess the common thread through a lot of this stuff Sam, the teachers are finding, is that the resources just aren't there. The will is there, but the tools that that are needed to try to deal with this just aren't there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. 100%. You know, the the, uh, the government and the Minister of Education have said that this is a uh, key priority, that violence is unacceptable. Uh, and uh, we have, along with other affiliates, our Catholic uh, counterparts, uh, the Canadian uh, uh, Mental Health Association and other education stakeholders uh, have been pushing the government uh, to look at and fix that funding formula so that the supports can be on the ground and be there sooner rather than later. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, issuing uh, the money, obviously, the funding for this, uh, the uh, the staffing for this. And, and I know that, uh, that there's a great controversy and a great debate that goes on uh, at different boards right yeah. across the province, Sam, about educational assistance and about, uh, you know, the staffing for that. Uh, so many times I've talked to parents that, uh, that have children that are dealing with these issues, and it's not just the children that are dealing with them. It's the family of the, the child. It's also the teacher of that child that are dealing with them. Uh, there's so much that has to go into this, and the resources just don't seem to be there. You get somebody for half a day or for a couple of hours, and uh, it just doesn't seem to fit the bill. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, a good example is you may have a school where, uh, in fact, you have, uh, I'll just use a number, 10 students who have been identified who need uh, additional assistance from profes- professionals other than uh, their teacher or early childhood educator. Um, and there, there are 10 of them, and there may be only two EAs within that school. So those two educational assistants or other support personnel then have to divide their time uh, between those 10 instead of focusing on the two that they should be assigned to. So they're covering it. From a number standpoint, they're covering it, but they're not really yeah. because they're not paying yeah. attention to them and not giving them the, the attention that they really deserve or need. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And we've, we've been saying that, uh, you know, so, some people have suggested, for example, that this is a political push for us, a war for us to get more members. Uh, and in fact, we have been talking about this for over a year. And in fact, the, the additional supports professionals that we're talking about on the ground uh, would not, are not a part of our union. Uh, they would be, uh, they would come from elsewhere in the educational uh, system. Uh, this is more of an issue that we need to do something on behalf of these students and our members. Sam, about those members, about the teachers themselves, the ones who are in the front of the classroom, uh, what about training? What about dealing with this, being able to identify issues and, and, and deal with this? And, and you're right. I mean, if you're dealing with a classroom of 25 or 30 or maybe even more students, it's difficult to say, hey, uh, so-and-so has a problem. I have to pay more attention because there's so many other students, which is why you know education assistance should be allotted in the first place. But those numbers just aren't there right now. But, but how do you help your student, your teacher members uh, identify this and deal with this on a daily basis? Well, we'll get to the EA thing in a second, but the teachers themselves, have a huge burden of responsibility on this matter. Yeah, they, they absolutely do, and uh, they are doing their absolute best uh, across the province, but teachers, quite frankly, can't fix this problem. Uh, teacher, teachers are, uh, if you will, keeping a lid on it, having to deal with the day, uh, the day in and the day out of these violent incidents that are taking place. 
Um, they are trained to teach. There's, they have a wide range of curriculum that they have to cover. They do their absolute best to uh, individualize programs for students and to deal with individual needs. But you can well imagine if uh, in our integrated system uh, that if you have 20 to 30, uh, uh, 25 to 30 or more students, uh, and this is happening, uh, it's extremely difficult. Uh, our, our members are uh, p- participating. They're not mental health uh, specialists. Uh, let me start there if I can. Uh, they are uh, taking part in training in terms of in- intervention and de- uh, de-escalation of situations. Uh, but there needs, there needs to be, as I've said repeatedly, those additional professionals who, who have more of a focus on dealing with preventing uh, those kinds of situations and de-escalating them. Yeah, you want to ensure that the escalation doesn't happen in the first place, but that takes somebody yeah, who's yeah. who's got training in that particular uh, discipline so they can understand and see the warning signs before it does escalate. Yes, absolutely. Easier said than done. Yes. <laughs> you know, when, you, yeah. when you've when you got your, your attention on three or four different students and one of them starts to, to maybe go towards that, that end, uh, you know, how do you identify that and how do you deal with that when you've got other students and other responsibilities? And at the same time, there's supposed to be some teaching going on here. I think I, I, what we want to do here is paint a picture of just how exasperating it can be in the classroom when some of these things start to happen. Yeah, and, and, and I think, um, you know, that, that came out quite, quite clearly uh, from our members when we have, you know, 79% of them saying it's escalating, uh, 83% of them saying that it's interfering with their teaching and their classroom work. We had 40% of our members who responded, uh, for example, who have taken part in classroom evacuations where there's a violent incident in a classroom and that classroom needs to be evacuated, all the students in that classroom, uh, because of that. And, and, and that, along with the fact that some teachers are having to wear Kevlar now, is completely unacceptable. And I think, I think the main issue here is that we need to be working together, everyone, the government and all of the educational partners, to deal with this. Well, and, and the defense mechanism, like I say, from some of the people that have responded to this conversation and said, well, you know, it's, it's because they've spared the rod, and that, that's not the issue here. I mean, we're talking about behavioral issues. Uh, in some cases, medication is necessary, and, and somebody has to make sure that those uh, medications are being handed out properly. It's dealing with some of these issues. You can't go in there and physically try uh, to do something about it oftentimes, because that's only going to make a bad situation worse. And I saw the story on Global, and I'm sure you did too, Sam, for one of your uh, teachers who actually is uh, suffering the long-term uh, effects of a concussion because she got hit in the head with a table and got tossed uh, by a student who was uh, having one of these episodes. And, and, I mean, what can you do in a situation like this? Uh, you, know, you can't uh, you know, go back there and simply say, I'm going to be physical, I'm going to restrain them. You can't send them to the office. This is a behavioral issue, and uh, it, it requires additional staffing and additional training. Yes, absolutely, and I absolutely agree with you that it is, you know, there are cases where uh, students are involved in the progressive discipline policy. Uh, It may not be mental health issues, but I would suggest to you the vast majority of them are are students who are trying to cope with and deal with uh, mental health uh, issues on a number of different levels. But therein lies the difference, right? I mean, you're absolutely right. Then there may well be a student who's going to be a quote-unquote troublemaker, but you've got policies for that, and you've got protocols yeah. for that, and and teachers and and schools will follow those policies, uh, you know, as as those things develop. But over and above that, you've got these other situations where uh, uh, you've got people that are dealing with different conditions, and there's so many different ones we could talk about here. I I hate to just identify one or two, but uh, but education assistants and teachers are are aware of these certainly. And, and it puts an extra burden on you because I know that the teacher is usually uh, informed of this, sits down probably with the, the, the parents of, of the student in question in situations like this and said, okay, how can we try to accommodate this and how do we prepare for this? So there's some dialogue that's ongoing right now, but boy, that doesn't necessarily prepare you for what might happen on a daily basis. No, I, I, absolutely. And uh, we're, we're finding because of this, um, you know, uh, another example uh, um, of uh, severity of it or how it's affecting our members, just to, uh, you know, focus on them for one minute. Um, their sick use of sick leave time has gone up based on uh, things that they've been involved in. WSIB 
reporting. And uh, to extend that, uh, we we uh, run and own our own long-term disability plan, and we have seen the rates for uh, mental stress, uh, anxiety, et cetera, uh, go through the roof, uh, and in particular related to what we're talking about here. So how do you try to address this? I mean, do you have that discussion with the ministry? Is it, is it at that level? Do you do it at the board level? Where do you go? Yeah, well, you know, uh, board at the, at the board level, we want to have the conversation with everyone. Uh, we want to have the conversation with boards, with trustees, uh, primarily with the government because they hold the strings for, uh, for funding here. The government has uh, responded uh, in part to, to our requests around training, uh, training for our members, training for uh, school administrators. Um, and some boards are taking this on. The Waterloo Board recently did a good job of uh, dealing with it initially, the concerns initially at a recent uh, a board meeting in terms of reporting. Uh, but the, the focus for us in trying to work with all of the partners, the focus for us on behalf of students and our members is, is to work with with the government to work with the Minister of Education and the Minister of Labor uh, on a go-forward basis. Uh, and, and frankly, we will tell them again, as we did yesterday and we are today, uh, that that funding formula needs to be fixed. There's no easy, no easy solution, though, is there? There is not, no. I mean, no, I mean you know, back in, in when I was going to school, way, way back, I mean, special needs students, we tended, we, we did, they just got grouped usually into one classroom. That was the special yes. needs class, and, 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 and it was not the right solution. We knew that. I mean, integration yes. in, in some way, shape, or form has is, is got to be part of the process here. But at the same time, you've, you've got to give the teachers and the educational assistants the tools necessary to be able to, to live with this and deal with this. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and uh, that's exactly what we have said. The, we are fully in support of an integrated model for uh, students with special needs uh, and in, integrate that special programming so that they can be participate in that regular setting. But the problem is, is that that model only works if you have all of the supports that that student needs. Um, you know, even, even when students aren't assessed, uh, teachers will still, uh, in conjunction with the team, uh, develop an individual education plan for each of those students. What they're finding is that 50% or more of that plan can't be fulfilled because the supports aren't there to, to do that. And, and there are some wonderful plans for those that need stuff over and yeah. above outside the classroom environment. There are special programs that a, a number of boards right across the province mm-hmm. have developed, and, and good on them because I know how effective those can be. But again, it's numbers. I mean, the, 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 you know, yeah. you can't accommodate everybody who necessarily might need that. So the classroom has really got to be the, the starting point for this. That's that's really where the I guess the focus needs to be. Sam, I'm glad you brought this to our attention. I, I'm so glad that Global ran the story about this and, and, and shed the light on this story and started this discussion and this dialogue going uh, because it is a key part of what's going on here. And it's, it's a safety issue, but it's also at the same time uh, it's an issue for the, the long-term development of uh, those students that are dealing with uh, special needs issues. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Let's stay in touch, uh, hopefully, as we find some solutions to this. Yeah, and thanks to you, Bill, for taking this time to focus on this important issue. We'll Much talk again soon. Thanks again. Sam Hammond, Take president care. of the uh, uh, Elementary Teachers Federation. And uh, it's, uh, it's a daunting task, really, that they're facing right now. And it's good to know that it looks like the, the ministry, anyway, is going to pay some attention to this. Just talk to an education assistant and a teacher next time you're dropping your kids off at school, and you'll uh, you'll get some some details about some of the stuff they're dealing with. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.